Authors need stories more than stories need them. That was Joe Pug. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is The Midnight Disease. On WALT, it's The Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Grace M501, the Harrison 32EQ, and the RNC500 analog tones. On a Tuesday afternoon, welcome to the Moon Cabin. Thank you for being here. I don't know if you folks listen to Mark Marin's WTF podcast, but Marin has this question that he is sort of famous for asking. Who were your guys? And what I take that question to mean is, who were the people whose work you discovered at a formative period in your artistry and went, that is what music sounds like. That is what films look like. That is what radio sounds like, feels like, is supposed to be. And my guest today on The Midnight Disease is one of my guys, Jesse Thorne. Your guys are the people that you build your aesthetic around. Like, I have this formative memory of being in fifth grade and my jazz band teacher putting on the Tower of Power song, Walking Up Hip Street. And it gets to the middle of the song, and there is this insane drum solo where it sounds like it's an octopus playing the drum kit. And I remember him playing it for us over and over and over again and saying, listen to how much is happening right now. And the thing I remember noticing, in addition to the kind of virtuosity of the guy playing the drums is how dry the mix on the drums was. It sounded like you were in a resonance-free room hearing the purest tone of every cymbal strike, every kick drum hit, every single impact of every grain of wood of the drumstick on the skins of the toms and the snares. You could hear all of it. And ever since then, I have noticed, whenever I hear drums with reverb or a bunch of effects on them, I think, no, that's not real music. Tower of Power, that's real music. Get out of the way of the drummer. (laughs) These things get in and they stick. And there are four guys for me that for me sound like the radio is supposed to sound. Jesse Thorne, Mark Marin, Luke Burbank, and John Miller. And I love all of them for different reasons, but something that all of them have in common is the tone of the way they speak. It is big, warm, welcoming, avuncular, but it is also subtly authoritative. When you listen, you just instinctively know you are in their house. Everyone is welcome in the house, but it's their house. 
And one of the reasons that I'm always telling you guys at the beginning of the show what I'm recording on is because a big part of my journey as a podcaster is trying to make my voice sound like theirs. And I am convinced that there is some specific cocktail of equipment that will yield that sound. Now, I know, I know, and I can hear you saying in your heads, the reason that they sound the way they sound is probably because they are not thinking about the way that they sound. They're just talking. I'm working on it. But anyway, at this point, I have been listening to Jesse Thorne for 18 years. So talking to him was a big deal. And if you don't know who Jesse is and you love podcasts, take note. Jesse Thorne is literally one of the first podcasters. I'm going to say that again. He is one of the first podcasters. His origin story is in many ways the origin story of our medium as we know it. Jesse started this radio show in college called The Sound of Young America. And when he graduated, he just kept doing the show. This is back in 2004, 2005. So literally when podcasting was invented. And I don't know what you're thinking when you think college radio, but this was not amateur hour. It was thoughtfully planned. And Jesse had this real presence right from the beginning. He's one of those guys that you listen to and you think, oh, this guy's a pro. He knows what he's doing. But the other thing that you can hear is how much he loves doing it. And when you listen to those old Sound of Young America broadcasts, which are archived on the internet, you can find them. It's this amazing combination of him and his friends, Jordan and Gene, just messing around with each other, having a great time. And then also these really thoughtful interviews with people like a young Colin Malloy of the Decemberists, who you can hear, I think this interview was in 2005, you can hear Colin Malloy, who is now one of the most respected singer-songwriters on the planet, you can hear him being like, I can't believe someone wants to interview me on the radio. You can hear that. And that's radio at its best, man. Anyway, so Jesse graduates from college. He moves back in with his mom. And he starts driving back and forth to UC Santa Cruz, where he went to college and where he started The Sound of Young America, to keep doing the show. And he starts releasing it as a podcast. And eventually, this guy named Chris Bannon at WNYC hears the podcast, calls Jesse up, and The Sound of Young America becomes an NPR show. Now, that show is still on today. It's no longer called The Sound of Young America. It's now called Bullseye, but it's the same show. And Jesse is still doing some of the best interviews in the game. He recently spoke to Tom Hanks. We're going to talk about that in this interview. But think about that journey, right? From your college radio show to national public radio, a lot of people would stop there. But Jesse didn't stop there. So at this point in his story, it's 2006, and he's got a radio rig set up in his apartment to do the NPR show. And he calls up his friend Jordan Morris, who he did The Sound of Young America with in college, and they start a podcast called Jordan Jesse Go, where the two of them hang out and joke around, and they have a guest on, usually a comedian, and then the three of them 
joke around. Now, that format might sound obvious to you or, or very, very familiar. And that's because Jordan and Jesse basically invented it, at least as far as podcasting goes. They were one of the first shows to figure out that a great podcast is a great hang. Now, I did radio in college, and our show was a long-form serialized radio drama, and we would spend all week writing the show, and then on Sunday night, we would perform the show, and then at midnight, we would get off the air, we would go to Wawa, and we would get subs, and then we would come back and hang out in my friend Garrett's room, and we would listen to the show and make fun of ourselves and do bits about how it went, and that was the best part. And when I first heard Jordan Jesse go, I remember thinking, oh, they figured out how to put that part of the hang on the air. And I was transported back to some of the best nights of my life. So the other thing about Jesse, it's early mid 2000s. He's doing The Sound of Young America on NPR and Jordan Jesse Go. And he gets this idea to form a network out of these podcasts a group of shows that will exist under the same umbrella and help each other out, feed audience to each other, be a, a record label of sorts. And he calls this network Maximum Fun. Now, these days there are dozens of podcast networks. Wondery, Gimlet, Pushkin, Forever Dog, HeadGum. You've heard of them. And these are some of the most hotly valued properties in modern media. You've probably seen the headlines about places like Amazon and Spotify acquiring these podcast networks for hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, not to sound like a broken record, but Jesse kind of invented the podcast network as we know it. Maximum Fun was one of the first networks. And recently, as a lot of those big money acquisitions have crashed and burned, Jesse decided to do something remarkable which is to sell Maximum Fun to his employees. As of this past March, Maximum Fun is a worker-owned company. And speaking personally, as a veteran of more than one podcast network that has crashed and burned because all the business decisions were being made by a few guys in a conference room in Blazers who did not make podcasts, I think what Maximum Fun is doing is exciting. I don't know enough about business to say if it's going to work, but the other version has not worked. And so the idea of trying something different with the values that they seem to be trying it with is very exciting. But what really feels exciting is that when you listen to Jesse Thorne, whether he is interviewing Tom Hanks or doing a quiz about obscure 1920s baseball players with Jordan and Cameron Esposito on Jordan Jesse Go. It's still a great hang. You can tell the guy is having as much fun today as he was 20 years ago. So, needless to say, I was thrilled when Jesse Thorne agreed to hang out with me on The Midnight Disease on WALT. <laughs> Jesse. 
Jesse Thorne, welcome to The Midnight Disease. What a thrill to be here. Um, the first question I always like to ask folks is, if you think of this phrase, The Midnight Disease, and you apply it to your creative life, can you paint a picture for us of Jesse Thorne in the throes of creative compulsion? <laughs> I mean, so much of what I do that I enjoy the most is what my dad would have called shooting the shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, I truly love talking to people. Mm-hmm. And to me, there is no time that I am happier than when I am 40 minutes into an episode of my comedy show, Jordan, Jesse Go, that is really working. Mm -hmm. And that show, you know, I do stuff that has lots of content. Jordan, Jesse Go is, was built almost to be anti-content, <laughs> um, much to its detriment commercially, <laughs> but as an artistic endeavor. Yeah. To start with nothing and make something with mm -hmm. somebody who I love and respect as much as I love my co-host Jordan and, and the people who are guests on our show, that feeling is like flying. Like that is really special and extraordinary. Yeah. And for me, that is the time when I most feel like, oh, I could just do this forever. Yeah. The way that people say they feel when they're, you know, in the middle of when they finally get going on that great poem or whatever. Yes, yes. This makes this makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm really glad you started here because I've heard you say and, and read you say uh, that for you growing up, radio per se was not a great passion of yours necessarily, <laughs> that, that you didn't anticipate yourself having a career in radio. But this phenomenon of, of shooting the shit and, and that idea coming from your dad, what are your earliest associations with that as a feeling that it felt really good to be connected with? Well, I, you know, I was, I am my mother's only child and my father's, was my father's only child until I was um, eight or nine. I can't remember exactly how mm -hmm. old I was when mm -hmm. my younger half-brother was born, but I am in many ways largely an only child. Both of my parents were slash are, each of my parents were slash are hyperverbal mega geniuses. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so I was, you know, I'm not an antisocial loner, but I spent a lot of time with my parents one-on-one -on -one talking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And neither of my parents is funny. I mean, my mom <laughs> is funny in the sense that she's a weirdo. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> my dad is, I don't know what you would say, avuncular or was mm. avuncular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My dad loves having a great time talking and laughing, but he doesn't make jokes. Got it. Yeah. In general, I think just there was a lot of pleasure to be had talking to grownups as a child. Mm -hmm. And I think to some extent, I still, <laughs> I still talk to others as though I were a child talking to grownups. <laughs> I'm still functionally still a hyper precocious child. It it also stunts your development to some extent. <laughs> but um, yeah, like I really 
there is this line in one of my friend and coworker John Hodgman's one man shows where he says he's a member of the only children super smart afraid of conflict narcissists club <laughs> okay yeah and you know given the amount of unpredictability and absence and conflict in my family life i think talking and laughing and joking were pretty reliable yeah and still are and is it fair to say hearing the way you've characterized it just there that the prospect of extending that moment of perhaps a refreshing break from these other factors for as long as you possibly could i can see where that would feel like this is i want this to last as long as possible because i don't want more of the other yeah i mean you know neither of my parents were either verbally or physically abusive mm -hmm. but um they both had real gigantic challenges in their lives yeah and my father had very severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And it meant that when he was surprised or anxious or got angry, his reactions were trauma reactions, you know? Yeah. It was straight to the amygdala for him. Totally. And my mother is neurodivergent in ways that would be difficult to diagnose or recognize even now and certainly in 1948 yeah. or 1952 were not recognizable. I mean, she just the other day casually said to me, yeah, I mean, I used to throw chairs in class, but that was only up until like second grade. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they're both were and are extraordinary human beings. Yeah. But it was unpredictable. And they also were in active conflict legally and otherwise through my entire childhood until I was literally the last time they stopped, they stopped taking each other to court when I was 16. And then, you know, just regular gifted kids stuff, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. being different from your peers because you're a weirdo. Yeah. And so for me, it was, I was a pretty bad student or a mixed at best student. Um, just being somewhere fun that was free of the expectations of teachers. Mm -hmm. And so like, just like goofing around was the happy place for being with my parents. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wasn't going to be a disappointment to anyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, like I just, um, and I don't even think, you know, here I am professional comedy person. Like, I don't think it's my greatest gift. I don't think I went into it for that reason. Like Jordan and John, my co-hosts are both much funnier than I. I just think it's what I enjoy the most. And it was a place where there was, I never had to deal with Jesse has so much potential, but, and right. I never had to deal with, this is something that's upsetting my parents because my parents both thought it was great. Well, if I may, uh, there is an expertise to being the funniest person in the sense of, you know, being quickest to punch lines and uh, best at doing voices, you know, whatever manifestation of this we may choose. But most there, prolific farter. Yes, yes, perhaps the greatest of all skills. Mm -hmm. But there is also an expertise to creating the space for someone with those talents to be able to do their version of flying. And, I mean, that is something that, you know, I don't know if you would put this on yourself, but I will put on you that you have been cultivating an expertise in for decades. Is it fair, having just heard you 
talk about this dynamic with your parents to make a connection between those those yeah, things. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll tell you this. As far as comedy goes, like one of my only... I haven't had a lot of mentors in my career because it's been so sui generis and because I'm the kind of guy that everyone assumes has everything under control. Um, (laughs) One of the closest things to mentors was this guy, Mal Sharp. And Mal and his comedy partner, uh, Jim Coyle, did Man on the Street put-ons in San Francisco in the 60s. -hmm. And this is not the 60s, not San Francisco in the 60s. This is San Francisco in the ni- in the before San Francisco in the 60s. This is San Francisco in 1962, not San Francisco in 1968. Right, pre-LSD. <laughs> and they would, yeah, and they would go up to whoever had on the heaviest looking shoes in a given area. <laughs> it's one of their big, okay, one of their big keys was look for somebody with heavy looking shoes. And they would spin the most insane, complicated put-ons. They'd say they were from a radio station. Sometimes it would be a hidden mic, but Uh they'd say they were from a radio station. Then they would say, one of them was they were offering someone a job. The segment was, offer a San Franciscan a job. They're talking to this guy. Uh The job is he has to work in a pit. He says, okay, I'll work in a pit. He says, okay, well, just so you know, when you're working in the pit, um, there's fires in the pit. So it's your job to take care of the fires. He says, okay. And it says, and there's bats in there. I'd say, okay, there's there's viewers. So it's a partly a performance. So there will be people around the edges of the pit watching you. He says, okay, you know. And there's not a meal break, but you can catch and eat the bats. You roast them in the, in the fires. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. And there's maniacs. So part of your job is controlling the maniacs. <laughs> right. And this this is happening over 10 minutes of conversation. Yep. And Jim Coyle was the one who came up with these insane ideas, okay. right? Mm-hmm. And he was in almost comically straight-laced, had been a professional con man mm-hmm. at some point, um, but would come up with truly, there's one where they ask people if they would be interested in participating in an experiment to grow sugar bowls out of their head. <laughs> and they couch it all in this language that makes sense about, you know, whatever the 1962 equivalent of sustainability is. Yeah. Yeah. And Mal was just like a pleasant guy who was glad to be there, who you would be glad to talk to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To me, if I can be like, I love making great jokes, too. Um, and I love that on Judge John Hodgman, especially in live shows, I'm not the host, so I don't have to be in charge of the traffic. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I do get a lot of pleasure out of running the traffic and uh-huh. just having a great time being uh-huh. there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me uh, hearing you, like, even in your imitation of this bit, you're doing something that I've always responded to very strongly in you as a host, which is the music of your voice is very smooth. It's very reasonable. <laughs> it's very present. It's it's very, for the most part, it's like low in the in the in the range. And it puts me instantly at ease. And it is where a tremendous amount of my delight at the comedy uh, on Jordan Jesse Gosey comes from, which is that your vibe is very much like, hello, I'm Jesse. I'm extremely reasonable. And um, here are several comments about uh, <laughs> me and my co-host's balls. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. um, like well, you... also on Jordan Jesse goes, there's also this. We're <laughs> yes. going up here. <laughs> Yes. I'm much, my character on Jordan Jesse Go, much bigger than Jordan's. Jordan's is much more like what he's like in real life. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's interesting to hear. But, but that, 
that sort of purposeful, illusory reasonableness and rationalness opens up space for comedy. It's very inviting of comedy in a way that doesn't grab you by the lapels and say, like, it's time for funny stuff. Um, And I'm wondering, I mean, do you take that directly from Coyle or is that... I mean, I was just putting together some... When people join Maximum Fun, my podcast network, when they join as members, when they become donors, Mm -hmm. they get access to, like, some special Uh episodes. And we were putting together some for Bullseye, my public radio interview show, and one of them was going to be old stuff from the show from long, long ago, because mm-hmm. it's been 20 years. Yeah. So we're like, what is it 20 years ago? We found what I think is maybe the first interview we ever did with Dick Dale, <laughs> the king of the surf guitar. Okay. And one of the things we found was this interview I did with these guys from this sketch comedy group in San Francisco called Casper Hauser, who uh-huh. are my friends and, and my heroes still to this day. And it was James and Rob, James Richmond and Rob Bedecker and me. And they had come to do the, host the show with me. And our guest was this woman who, who was casting talent for a network television show called Steve Harvey's Big Time. <laughs> okay. And this woman, like the level of self-parody in this woman, um, we had gotten <laughs> an unsolicited pitch for this. And this woman was like, this woman came on the air fully 10 out of 10 like a like a rocket out of a rocket shooter um that classic metaphor that makes sense um <laughs> she just came on the air fully like we're looking for fun crazy people right there in Santa Cruz who can do amazing things for Steve Harvey's big time i'm talking about stupid human trick like she literally talked like that that was not hyperbolic as to how she talked And me and James and Rob all just sat there and just fed her lines about the weirdest things we could think of just to see if we said them like we were asking her a real question. Yeah. Uh Would she respond to them as though she was on the morning radio show that she was on inside her mind? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And I hadn't thought about it in so long. And I just think to me, to me, I think the... Funniest things, I mean, I love a joke joke. Like, I love Mel Brooks. But I love the idea. (laughs) I think the funniest thing to me in the world is something ridiculous is happening, and the person is either unaware of it or unwilling to acknowledge it. Uh So, like, Chevy Chase is hilarious to me because Chevy Chase's characters all have this absurdly high status. Uh Uh-huh. And so they just float through no matter what happens to them. They're the same, (laughs) which is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. They're Um, like, I guess this is how this goes. (laughs) Yeah. I love, I love, and I love like Stella. I love. Yes. uh, David uh, Wayne and uh, Michael Showalter. Yeah. And and Showalter and Michael Ian Black. Yeah. On their show, it was a very silly version of that. Or in their movie, um, Wet Hot American Summer, Mm -hmm. which is that they just completely operate as though they are in a real show yeah, right. but also they say words wrong uh-huh. <laughs> without acknowledging that they're saying the words wrong yes yes and they act basically like robot vacuum cleaners in human form <laughs> right <laughs> like i the, when you talk about things that live rent free in my head almost nothing does so much as a stella short 
where the three of them go to David Wayne's, and they're just these guys in suits. They're like empty guys in suits. Mm -hmm. They go to David Wayne's cousin's house, I think, and there's these two moments. One is Michael Ian Black excuses himself to go to the bathroom, and then he comes out with a towel on his head and one wrapped around his chest and otherwise completely nude. And he stretches his arms out and he says, I needed a shower in the worst way. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another part where one of them uh, dumps jelly onto a family beloved family photo album, then runs to the dry cleaner and says, do you have jelly remover? <laughs> jelly remover for photo albums. <laughs> And like, to me, the idea that the normal world is continuing apace while silly nonsense happens is the most delightful thing ever. Yes. Like, I just love that idea. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, so tell me then, what was it? Because I'm, I've also heard you say that, that when you guys started Sound of Young America at, uh, on KZSC, Shout you, out to the Heavyweight 88. The heavy Okay, this is just a total Jesse Thorne geek question. Was Heavyweight 88 your thing, or did they already say that? No, I think they said the Heavyweight. I think, yeah, I think our man, maybe our hip-hop director, Josh, came up with that. Okay. It was okay. definitely the Heavyweight, yeah, no, the Heavyweight 88. Heavyweight 88. Um, so I've heard you say that you started the radio show because it was cheaper than doing things on video. Um, and... I'm curious, I guess, were you at that time just looking for some forum to make comedy with your friend Jordan and radio seemed like the best thing? What was the impulse that that brought you to the studio in the first place? Yeah, the first person I the first person I partnered with was Gene O'Neill, mm -hmm. um, whose name really is that. Uh, and he was just the funniest person I had ever met. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. He and I were the same year in college. Jordan's a year younger than I am. Okay. So Gene and I met in our first class. He, went, he later told me that he thought I was drunk the entire time. <laughs> That's particularly funny because you are, if I'm not mistaken, you are a sober person, correct? Yeah, I am. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty straight-laced in a lot of ways. But he just <laughs> had never met anyone. I went to arts high school, and he went to high school in the Valley. You know? Ah, okay. Got it. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, so Gene and I became fast friends and it was just, I just couldn't believe how funny Gene was. Mm -hmm. And he still maybe is the funniest friend I've ever had. Um, then Jordan was my student. I was his RA. He was my resident on my, on my hall. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I was just like, well, who does this guy think he is that he thinks he's funnier than me? And then I was like, uh oh, I think he's funnier than me. <laughs> so I just, he just sort of, we, we brought him in on it. Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And it really was, you know, we had done, we did improv together. Gene hated performing, so he quit pretty quickly. But Jordan and I did improv together. And we later did sketch comedy together. But radio was the thing that could reach people the most easily. Mm -hmm. I mean, at case there was no film. There was no film that we had access to. There was no TV that we had access to. But I went on a tour of the college radio station, and it seemed straightforward enough. Mm -hmm. And we were lucky because our college radio station is a real radio station. You know, yeah. my wife had a my wife went to a much better college than I did, and they had a college radio station, and it broadcast to the student union over the cable system. Right. 
Right. Our college radio station was a 30,000 watt station that covered the Monterey Bay area, which is a few million people. The heavyweight 88. And people listened to it. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, not huge numbers, but one time Jordan and Gene and I were riding on the bus, the city bus, down to downtown Santa Cruz from the campus. And we were goofing around. And a man who was sitting behind us, like a, a handsome young guy, you know, like a 28-year-old guy, said, excuse me, are, are you guys at the Sound of Young America? Mm-hmm. And we had never been recognized in public. And he just recognized the sounds of your voices. Yeah. And we said, wow, yes, we mm-hmm. are the Sound of Young America. Are you, are you a fan of the show? And he's like, I listen every week. And oh we're like, God. wow, you must really love KZSE. And he said, uh, I'm homeless and my radio only gets one station. <laughs> well, uh, a fan's a fan. But a fan's a fan, folks. <laughs> a fan's a fan. So uh, it's very tempting for me to ask if you recall thinking about this in any concrete way for a kid who grew up as a member of the, the very long John Hodgman uh, group that I, I can't remember mm-hmm. all the words of, but that involved you yeah. know, being kind of Only a children super smart, afraid of conflict narcissist club. That's the one. Um, you, you grow up kind of uh, with that sort of sensibility about yourself. And here you are at the age of 19. You've got these two friends who want to hang out with you and pursue some particular comedic expression on the radio every week. And you are starting little by little to find... Uh, an identity, and that, and uh, it, it's becoming a vector of connection, even if it's even if it's just between the three of you guys. Did that resonate in some way that felt connected to your upbringing, or? Yeah, I mean, I knew that I loved performing. Mm-hmm. I went to arts high school. It was a hard school to get into. Yeah, I did theater there, and the theater there was really serious. It was like really hard work, serious business stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am not great at acting and I'm bad at memorizing lines and I hate auditioning for things. Uh (laughs) So I thought, and you know, when you're studying theater, people are just like, if this isn't, if you don't, if you don't feel like you were put on the, if, well, that was a radio guy voice, but the, (laughs) the real voice would be like, if you don't feel as though you were put on this earth to perform the works of the bard, then I say, away with you. This is not the profession for you, for it is us, the artists, who are driven by our passion, who can make their way in this terrible business of the boards. Um, and I was like, oh, I guess I'm not that guy. <laughs> right. And, and you know, who would want to be. <laughs> yeah. And I like took an acting class at Santa Cruz and I was like, oh, these people are not talented like my classmates in high school were. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> like, right. I wish them the best, but, and I'm not saying I'm talented. I'm just saying I kind of knew that wasn't it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing improv and that's not a job. Right. <laughs> and I knew that. And going on the radio had the two useful things about it. One was that it was there, it was available, and it actually like made an impact, you know, mm-hmm. like it, we could tell that people were listening. Yep. The other was that I couldn't think I wasn't good enough and not try doing it because... If I didn't show up, there was no one there to play the emergency broadcast system in KZSU would lose its license and go ah, off the air, right? Interesting. Like, interesting. I had to be there. We had to show up. So my terror that I wouldn't do a good job, instead of being channeled into thinking about why I shouldn't do things, yes, 
had to be channeled into how can I least embarrass myself this Thursday? Right. Immediately, how can I least embarrass myself the next Thursday? And there's a positive framing of this, which there's some great videos that Ira Glass made years ago for current TV. I was just thinking about this. You're like forced into your... Uh, that period of time that he talks about where you you have taste but not skill or craft and you were kind of yeah. forced to put in that time. Yeah, I mean, some would argue that I still lack skill and craft. <laughs> uh, others blame my lack of talent. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like for me, it was like perfectionist, you know, nothing, could, nothing is going to be right. I see the flaws in everything, especially mm-hmm. something I did. Mm-hmm. And so going on the radio was just, I just had to do it every week. Like there wasn't another choice. Just like if you schedule a show, you got to show up and go on stage, right? Yeah. And those things combined. Mm-hmm. I think also, like I interview people on Bullseye all day long who became artists in defiance of their communities, whether it's mm. where they came from or their parents or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And my parents could never have been more supportive of anything I wanted to do. My dad was a professional anti-war activist. Yeah. Like, what's he going to say? You know you have to become a, a professional <laughs> anti-war ac- activist like me? Can right. do some, make a responsible choice? Right, right. Yeah. And, and, but if I'm hearing you right, too, he's also not the kind of dad uh, who's going to say, you know, um, go get a job and serve corporate, the kind of corporate interests that got us into various military misadventures. Also, you know, my dad was a writer Mm -hmm. and an organizer, and he was completely driven by wanting to, by, I think, the the pain and shame of having experienced war Mm -hmm. and wanting to make an impact to reverse what his actions had done in the world and to make things better for other people. And for himself in so doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that phrase, it make things better. I was just going to say it. It makes me think of, you talked once uh, a long time ago about the role of uh, church in your life and really responding to not the faith elements of it. I, I think you even said you <laughs> your church was cool with the fact that you openly did not believe in God. Yeah, um, they were totally fine with it. <laughs> but that that you felt like you were surrounded by a lot of people who were in various amounts of tension with being a model of good intentions and being a model of actually doing good works. Yeah, I went to this church called St. Gregory of Nyssa. And San Francisco, you won't be surprised to know that, you know, our, the archbishop was gay yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. And so uh, at this church, there were like murals, there are murals, icons of all of these religious figures, many of whom were non-Christian. Mm-hmm some of whom were not even religious figures. Paul Erdos, the mathematician, was one of them. Mm. Um, and they were doing a lot of work to create a liturgy that was inclusive of faith and driven by Christianity and Christian values, not non-Christian, but like inclusive and et cetera. Mm. Now, they were also substantially a bunch of annoying rich white people. Yeah. Um, not exclusively by any means, and all the people were you know, trying more than most, you mm-hmm. know. Right, right. And I remember my dad coming home one day from from Old St. Gregory's and saying there was seriously a conflict today about whether to have a food bank 
because what if, how could we secure the vestment area? Someone could steal the Coptic crosses, their silver and- Oh, geez. You know? Yeah. Like, we just don't have enough people to, like, keep an eye on things. Right. If we let these these people who need food in. Right. And my, my dad and this one other woman, <laughs> as he described it to me, said, what's the point of a church then? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, for my dad, he had had a very abusive home. And I think the church was, like, a safe place for him where he was cared for. This makes me think of, you said once that a big differentiator for of uh, Sound of Young America was that unlike a lot of college radio shows, you guys didn't have contempt for your listeners. <laughs> and I, I think that's a, it's a really, it's a really, you know, deceptively profound thing that you've articulated there. And it, it makes me think of, um, so in getting ready to talk to you, I was, I was going back and just listening to some, some college years episodes and there's this segment that you used to do where you'd have your brother Brendan call in and tell you a joke. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think maybe it was Johnny told me. But, well, I think John got too old to be cute, and then we started having Brendan do it. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and he calls in and he tells this joke, and I, I can't remember the joke, but what what comes through so strongly is that you and Jordan, you're really laughing. You're not laughing at him. You're You're laughing, at least how it comes across, is you're laughing with him. Um, and it, it's a very subtle difference because that, that segment honestly probably works either way. Right. Right. But you chose to do it in, there was an inclusion that was happening. And I'm curious to know, I guess, did there come a moment? Cause I, I also heard you say, you know, that you guys started doing this show out of a desire to just kind of keep doing comedy together. But did there come a moment where you started to realize, oh, I think we've found what this show is? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I'll say first that I think that vibe, mm-hmm. my stepmother is the funny person in my family. Uh-huh, uh-huh. My stepmother is a war survivor. She grew up in the Troubles in Northern Ireland and Belfast mm-hmm. and moved, left the country as a teenager 16, I think, mm-hmm. came to the United States. I mean, she was like 19 or something. Um, and she and my dad met, I think, through sobriety circles. Mm-hmm. And she's really funny. And, you know, it's on the nose to say Irish people are funny, but <laughs> it's a, let's say it's a valued trait, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Culturally yes. speaking, it's a valued trait. I mm-hmm. think we can say... That Jewish people and Irish people are two cultures disproportionately re- represented in comedy yep. that are so represented because their value, humor is valued in those cultures yes. uh, significantly. Yes. And um, my stepmother's funny as heck and very acerbic. And the main thing that would happen at my house was making fun of my dad. <laughs> <laughs> which my dad thought was the greatest thing ever. Okay, okay. I never once saw my dad be upset by us making fun of him, which is amazing because we really made fun of him a lot. And like I said, he had severe PTSD. It was easy for him to slip into being angry or suspicious or uh-huh. paranoid. <laughs> and like, he just thought it was fun to the point where my wife, when we first started dating, would come over. This is when we were teens. And uh, she'd be like, does your family all hate each other? 
Right. They hate your dad. You mm-hmm. all hate your dad. We're like, no, this is how we show love, right? Yeah, yeah. So in a love world, to me, that's what happens. I don't feel that way. If someone I don't love right. makes fun of me, I feel very sensitive. I'm a super sensitive guy. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> but, but I think that on Jordan Jesse Go, I think Jordan and I, we're both super conflict avoiders mm-hmm. because of our intense family lives family of origin lives. Mm-hmm. We both don't want to hurt people mm-hmm. and don't think that it's righteous to hurt people. Mm-hmm. And then also not wanting to be morning radio, which yeah. was the only thing like that at the time. Right. Even though you were on the radio in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, most radio funny things came down to that one episode of The Simpsons where Prairie Home Companion is on TV and Homer hits it and goes, be more funny be more funny (laughs) he thinks it's the reception um so they were like wasn't anything and the main thing where people were trying to be funny on the radio was morning radio and we just thought we hated that yeah so we didn't want to be topical Mm -hmm. we didn't want to talk about what happened on survivor right we didn't want to do segments we didn't want to have running things I mean, even the running things that we did, we stopped after doing like two or three because we were worried we did them too much. Right, right. And so what came out of it was this, the silliest, most abstruse, uh, like gleefully vulgar, but very sweet Mm -hmm. show that is impossible to explain to anyone why they would want to listen to it. Like, I remember there's these two really funny dudes who are, like, two of the only other still surviving comedy podcasters from the dawn of comedy podcasting who do this show called Oh Yeah, Dude. Uh And they read sort of news of the weird Mm -hmm. stories on their show. And they're so talented, so funny. And I remember even then being like, should we have done something on our show (laughs) people seem to like that (laughs) well if i may i mean i i feel like you know you're talking about how something you and jordan felt very certain of was this shared set of values and knowing what you didn't want to be and kind of not wanting to betray that and i think the thing that was initially connective for me in listening to your show was the sense that ultimately you were serving that connection that you had with each other. And, I mean, it makes me think of, there's a moment on on one of the episodes from back then where, I forget the exact details, but the the bit is that you're a correspondent at a tech conference and you're a giant talking bear. And... (laughs) I don't remember that at all, but that sounds fun. And it was, it's, it's very fun. And the idea is, I think you had like, you know, snuck into the next room and you were talking to Jordan over the phone patch. Um, Uh And then the phone patch failed Uh in the middle of the bit. And you guys wanted to continue the bit. So you come up with this thing about, oh, uh, well, I've actually just rigged up this hologram system. And now we're just piping (sighs) in the giant talking bear. And you clearly just come back on your regular mic. Yeah. And it's actually, I think, a very complex moment as a listener because what I'm listening to is two friends who have a silly idea maintaining a commitment to their silly idea in the face of the failure of the idea. It's the thing live radio can do that, you know, no other medium can do. 
Um, we also, there was a, we found a website where there was, that had speech, that had text-to-speech, mm-hmm. which was new at the time. Yep. That was like thrilling that you could just type it into a website and get a, a wave file. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And we just started having it type in things about how it was going to destroy us. <laughs> And we would always just go on to try and talk to it. And then I would just be, we had burn a CD of these. Like, that's how archaic this was. Uh uh Burn a CD of the, of these lines that we had written for this. (laughs) There was so much work to get it to print, to just, it, I'll crush you, Mike, up pathetic. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, come on. Come on, evil computer bent on world <laughs> destruction. Why right. would you talk to us that way? Right, 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 right. But there is something, you know, even in your just recounting of that, you know, even in your delivery of that, like, oh, come on, evil computer that's bent on destruction. There's an awareness in the delivery that is being shared with the listener that we also made the computer that's bent on destruction and we did this to delight ourselves and now you right now and i mean i think that's i think that's like i don't think we ever thought we were too cool for the room i think we all me and jordan and gene and me and jordan to this day had immense regard and respect for each other Mm. even if we were you know we didn't have a lot of big open conflicts just because we're Jordan and me in particular were so conflict avoidant. I mean, Gene just stopped showing up for a while. Um, <laughs> Which is a way but, of avoiding conflict up in its own yeah, way, exactly. I suppose. Exactly. But the, I think we just like, we were all just so excited to meet someone who cared this much about this stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and was really talented. People come up to me to talk to me. I'm talking about comedy professionals, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. John Hodgman. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, People mm-hmm. just are in awe of how funny Jordan is. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way. Like, I can't believe it. Like, mm-hmm. it's so fun. Like, it's so awesome. Yeah. And normally, if you work in comedy, you're like, well, I have to travel all the time for work and it's hard, really hard. Or like, yeah. Jordan used to work on a comedy quiz show where he had to write 100 jokes a day, you know, and you're just like, yeah, it's really hard work. Yeah. And it still is hard work for us. But I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's so fun. Like, yeah. it's the, basically the funnest. Yeah, it's really great. Goofing around with your friend and they're the funniest guy you've ever met. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Plenty more to come with Jesse Thorne. The Midnight Disease will return after a short break. You're listening to WALT. So on Jordan Jesse Go, I remember when I first started listening to it, something that really volcanoed my brain is that it's you and Jordan, and you start out the show, and you're just having a blast with each other. You're just talking in the way that I, I as a lover of both of your work, I'm, I'm a fan of listening to you talk. Meanwhile a very famous professional comedian is sitting right there. And you 
you and Jordan shoot the shit for a little while, and then you eventually invite the comedian into your comedic dynamic. They are invited to shoot the shit with you. It's not, and, and by and large, you don't interview them on the show. You invite them to get on your level. And I remember listening to that and thinking, like, you can do that? Like, you can... <laughs> how, how, are they, how are they doing this? So was that a conscious decision? Do you remember how that dynamic developed? And just to say, for what it's worth, you know, you guys are doing this in 2006, 2007, before comedy podcasts are, like, a widespread thing where that happens. So t- tell me about how that format, if we want to call it a format, emerged. I think we needed it to be our show. The relationship had to be with us. And so we needed there to be a piece of the show that was about us and our relationship with the audience. That I think is sort of like the role that you know, people famously complain about Marin talking about himself for 20 minutes before you get to the interview. Right. And A, I think Marin is a genius at that. Oh, it's, um, that's my favorite part of his show. <laughs> yeah. So I think that besides the fact that he is a great genius, which he truly is, but like the other important insight of that is that in an interview show, the audience doesn't have a relationship with the guest, so why are they there? Yeah. Right? Either you're booking only guests that the audience already likes, or there's a reason for them to be there. And so there has to be a reason for it that it's your show. Yeah. And I think the piece that you don't maybe didn't name explicitly that I'm very proud of is that this is entire. what you have said is entirely true, which is our show is a challenge to get on our level. And not to get on our level height-wise, but to to get on our wavelength, let's say. Like, you're here with us. We're doing this thing. Yeah. There certainly have been times when that's been a a disaster, (laughs) but they're relatively few. I mean, only, like, literally, the fact that I can identify them in my head right now is, you know, out of that 800 episodes we've done or whatever. But in general, the people look great. Mm-hmm. and are hilarious. Yes. Partly that's because we pick hilarious people mm-hmm. with whom we have enough relationship and trust that we know they can do hack it and and they're not worried that they're getting left behind. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like Susan Orlean, the writer for The New Yorker, regular guest on Jordan, Jesse Go, she's like a funny lady, but she's not like joke funny. Mm-hmm. You would say she's like fun. Mm-hmm. For being a genius, like in the genius, in the literary genius community, she's <laughs> profoundly fun. One of the finest. <laughs> yeah. Not a community known for breeding fun, per se. <laughs> um, but like Susan isn't like who you would go to to write gags for your show. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And Susan always comes out of our show looking like a million bucks. Right. Seeming like the funniest person ever. And the reason for that is that as much as we are trying to get in our jokes, especially me, I tend to talk over people, um, but as much as we're trying to get in our jokes, like we are both actively making the guest look good. Yeah. And that is very important. And not just because they, 
because that's what makes the show good. Mm-hmm. Like if they're not, if they're bad, well, then it's a bad episode. Yeah. And I would say I, I always look forward to seeing our Jordan Jesse go guest every week, whether it's a new person or an old person. Like I just always love, you know, you need something that's different, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like we're pros. Like I think we're both proud to be hardworking pros who mm-hmm. part of our job is to make the people look good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's so rare. Like, yeah. Uh, comedy legend Meryl Marco and the, the Penny Arcade guys are about the only people who've ever really looked bad on George <laughs> And they were they were driven to it to it. You yes. know, they were really focused on it. They really had seek, their eye on the prize. S- seek out that that episode, everybody yeah. listening. Don't seek them out. <laughs> so I'm glad you mentioned this this pro element of things. Um because I I wanna talk about another thing that I've always felt is a bit of a secret sauce for me in your work which is that it always sounds really good. And one of my favorite ways of illustrating for people, uh, if they have the misfortune to uh, not be familiar with you, but of illustrating your primacy in podcasting, is that I remember listening to an interview with Marin when he was starting WTF, where he said, oh, I got the microphone that Jesse Thorne told me to get. (laughs) (laughs) That, like, you were already so established at that point that that he had to come to you. Um, And that that microphone was uh, the microphone, I believe you're still speaking to me on to this day, the Shure SM7B, and it seems to, that mic in particular, seems to hold some significance for you to the point that, you know, I've seen... Jordan Jesse go videos from over the years where you guys have done road shows and you've taken SM7Bs like on the road. What is it about that mic for you and and your voice that you connect with? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like I said, I'm driven primarily by a terror that I'm going to embarrass myself. Mm -hmm. The thing about a Shure SM7 is, so there's two kind of levels of microphone that you'll see in a recording studio or a radio station or whatever. Yeah. One is these kind of mics called Neumanns. Yep. And these Neumanns cost (laughs) $3,500. Yes. And they're extraordinarily, they have an extraordinarily beautiful sound and you can hear a pin drop, right? Mm -hmm. They're incredibly beautifully sensitive microphones. Mm -hmm. A Shure SM7 is not that. A Shure SM7 loses much of what's going on. <laughs> yes. What's good about the Shure SM7, and it's, you know, one of the most used microphones in the world. You know, they record album vocals with it and stuff. But yeah. it costs, A, it costs $300. Now it probably costs $400. But when I started getting them, mm-hmm. I was buying them used on Craigslist for, you know, 150 or whatever. Right. B, so that number one, $3,000 mic was a non-starter. Yeah, for literally a tenth of the of yeah. the price. So $300 mic was like, I can save up for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the most professional sounding microphone that also is forgiving of recording in a non-professional studio. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I didn't, couldn't afford a studio, didn't have a studio. Mm-hmm. I stopped driving back and forth to Santa Cruz. I had to do it at my house. Mm-hmm. And I lived in a little apartment and this was the mic that sounded the most professional in that context. Because mm-hmm. if it had been one of those $3,000 Neumanns, which in some measures is a better microphone, 
you would have heard every single fire alarm right. and every single mouse crawling across my floor right. <laughs> because I really was just in, you know, I only stopped being in my apartment 10, 12 years ago. I mean, I did, did it like that for 10 years. Yeah. If, if I'm not mistaken, Jay-Z came to your house to do your show, right? <laughs> Jay-Z didn't come to my house. Who's come to my house? <laughs> the first one that... Uh, the first one that I remember coming over to my house that real was Jenna Fisher from The Office. Okay, yeah. And in the early days of my show, 100% of my guests basically had been tricked into coming. <laughs> and by the early days, I mean the first 15 years. And <laughs> my, I was recording out of my apartment in Koreatown in Los Angeles, and I lived on a street that was um, really awesome. I loved living on the street, but definitely like a heavy MS-13 street. Uh -huh. um, so it was like grungy. Like one time this publicist who was coming with someone literally said to me, so this is kind of ghetto, huh? I was like, lady, <laughs> you don't even know where I'm from. Let's not even get into this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Jenna Fisher, as you would expect from her public persona, which as far as I can tell is 100% for real, was the most gracious guest in the history of the world. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I was so touched by it. She was even nice to my dog. I was so touched by it. Like I interviewed her maybe two years ago about her podcast, Office Ladies, which is 75,000 times more popular than anything I've ever done. And I just told her like how much it meant for her to come over, not mm -hmm. treat me like I was going to murder her, um, be a gracious guest, talk to me like a real person, even though it was weird that it was my apartment. Mm -hmm. I mean, now everybody does podcasts out of their house, but it was only me. Like, right. There were other people, obviously, but like it was really weird. Like my guests had never been on a podcast before and had never been in someone's house to do an interview before. Right. Well, I, this is part of the reason I'm interested in in this moment of your career, because here are these famous people who are coming to what they've been told is an interview that that's going to be broadcast on public radio. And so they probably think, oh, great, this will be a, a great chance to connect with the public radio set. Um, those are folks with disposable income. And right. they show up at your MS-13 uh, area apartment. Yeah. And then they encounter you, who I can only assume is impeccably dressed, who I can only assume... Um, you know, greets them like very warmly and very welcoming. You have these very professional microphones. Um, you've got your own. I, I've seen pictures of your home studio from that time. You've got a mixing board. It's it, it looks like you just took the relevant, you know, pieces of equipment out of a radio station and put them in your house. Um, and then so perhaps they're thrown by the um, cognitive dissonance of all these factors and then they sit down and you approach them with a genuine passion and enthusiasm for their work. I would have to imagine that being artists themselves, there must have been something there that they connected with. But did you just have faith that that was going to happen? Were you worried about that? Was it something you tried to allow I mean, for? I just did, did it a lot. Mm -hmm. of times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had done it a lot of times on the phone by the time I was doing it in real life. Okay. And I also, it's very in vogue to have, to talk about your imposter syndrome. <laughs> and that one is one that I have not had. So I definitely think everything I do is garbage and I'd see everything that's wrong with everything I ever do. Mm -hmm. 
and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I do, I am fine with the idea that I belong in the room. And it's not because I'm better. It's just because I think it's fine for me to be in the room. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I can be in the room. And yeah. it, there's lots of people in the room. Mm-hmm. Like, let's, yeah, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't need to worry about whether I need to be in it or not. I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that on Bullseye and The Sound of Young America, the before it changed its name, like the thing about that show is I'm a fan of the people's work. Yeah. They're not there unless I care about their work. Right. And I'm not a fan in the like otaku, you know, memorize the name of every stormtrooper way. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't have a problem with that. That's not the type of thing that I'm expressing by saying fan, but like I care about their work. Like their yeah. work has moved me in some way. Yeah. Like I really believe in and care about art of various kinds. Yeah. So I care about their work, but I also have done this enough times to know that even Pedro Almodovar or Greta Gerwig or Maria Bamford, artists who whose artistry leaves me in awe, even ones who, you know, quote-unquote changed my life, you know, Ishmael Butler from Diggable Planets or, or Big Boy from Outcast or... You know, people who I were like adolescent heroes, even those people, like, they're people. Mm-hmm. Like, I just talk to them like they're a person. Yeah. Like, it's so weird not to, it's like exhausting not to talk to people like they're people. Yeah. Yeah. So the combination of like sincere, fond regard for their work and respect, like immense respect for their work, people can feel that. They can tell that I'm not there accidentally. Yeah. That it's not just an assignment an editor handed me and I had 10 minutes to get ready. Right. Or like a publicist uh, pitched you and you were like, yeah, we need content. Sure. Exactly. So two examples of this that come to mind in you saying that are like you did. uh, You interviewed Tom Hanks recently and you started that interview by talking to Tom Hanks about his resistance to change and how he contends with things being different than they used to be. And all of a sudden, Tom Hanks is talking like he's just a guy. The other example I'm thinking of is when you spoke to David Letterman, who I know is a hero of yours. You talked to him about what it was like to to lose his father, uh, because that was an experience at the time that that was fairly recent for you. How much were those... I don't want to call them moves because that sounds cynical, but how much were those techniques, let's call it, in an, in the interview that you were thinking about ahead of time? And how much of that was you sit down with these people who have wattage and it, it just be, it, it comes to mind as something that you can connect with them on? Letterman is my hero. Mm-hmm. Not that he's made, you know, I think he is reckoned and is reckoning with some of the things that he's done in creating a toxic works workplace and yeah yeah um you know some of the stuff he's done within his family and so forth um so those aren't heroic to me although mm-hmm. I do I'm grateful that he has engaged them yeah pretty directly mm-hmm. um but like creatively yeah no greater hero than David Letterman for sure and I had about half an hour to prepare for that interview 
because of stuff that was happening in my house. Mm-hmm. There was some really intense stuff happening in my house. So, yeah. And David Letterman was at his ranch in Montana and he was there with like his assistant and one other person that, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, lived at his ranch with him. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, they were all trying to set it up and he couldn't figure it out. I was drinking some seltzer. I was drinking this kind of seltzer and he mm-hmm. asked me if it was good seltzer. Uh-huh. Um, he just wants to make that connection. Like, yeah, partly because he wants to deflect from talking about himself, which obviously makes him very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it's not like it took him a long time to show who he was on air. Oh, yeah. He, years. He kept, and in, even in that interview, he keeps trying to interview you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to me, the show that I want to, like Letterman wanted to got a TV show to do anything he wanted. He decided he wanted to interview Tina Fey or whatever. Mm-hmm. When I, when I think, what would I like David Letterman's show to be? It's a podcast that's the, the B and C segments from the late years of the late show where it's just him telling Paul Schaefer about something that happened to him that day. (laughs) Like to me, that's what is hilarious, most hilarious about Letterman. So with Letterman, it was him. I was so raw and he so wanted to poke at me instead of revealing himself. It was very easy. It was easy peasy. Like that just was very natural that that happened in that way. Like I was, you know, I sat down at the microphone thinking like, I, here I am in the verge, at the verge of tears. Mm-hmm. And also I'm about to screw up interviewing literally my favorite entertainer of all time. Mm. With Tom Hanks. Before you go to Tom yeah. Hanks, can I just make sure I'm clocking correctly? So you're saying in that sense, Letterman kind of gave you a gift in this moment where he. I mean, Letterman was just there for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, okay. Part of Letterman's deal now is trying to engage with who he really is. It's obviously a struggle for him. Yeah. And continues to be, but he's available for it. Yeah. With Tom Hanks, I love Tom Hanks as much as the next guy, but don't have specific, hard, personal connections to Tom Hanks things. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, was just wasn't that worried about it. <laughs> like, on a personal level, you know? Yeah. Um, it yeah. wasn't like, if I screw this up, my life is over, which is definitely how I felt about Letterman, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my life was kind of over at that time in a broader sense. So, uh-huh. like, um, it was double vulnerable. Yeah. With Tom Hanks, the challenge was he is the most charming and glib person in the history of the world. Uh uh There is no profit to him in being revelatory. Right. When he can just be charming because he is. Mm -hmm. He's Mm -hmm. 10 out of 10. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I watched the movie the night before, which is this movie called My Name is Otto. And, you know, typically we see people being on our show as an endorsement of their work. And I broadly certainly endorse... Tom Hanks' work without hesitation. Uh-huh. But I watched that movie and I thought, I'm not going to talk to him about how much I loved this movie, but what about this movie has meaning to me in thinking about Tom Hanks? I got to try and get Tom Hanks to talk to me like a person. Mm-hmm. I really, I know that it won't be a disaster mm-hmm. because he's not, I'm not going to like do something that makes him mad at me. Yeah. He, he probably won't let it go badly, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and honestly, if it, I guess, 
you know, if it did go bad, I mean, that's what made John Gomeshi famous, you know, (laughs) before he was famous for being an asshole. Yeah. And, um, so like, I was like, I got to figure out something to, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I just thought it would be fun. The movie, he played a, a depressive grumpus. And I thought, well, I'll just talk to him about what makes him mad and grumpy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And worst case scenario, he does a bit. Best case scenario, he does a bit and shows me a little something. In doing it, I didn't feel like it was a bad interview or anything. And I have no less than any bad words to say about Tom Hanks, who was exceedingly gracious and charming and delightful. But I didn't leave that interview feeling like I had learned something about the human condition. Mm. which is when I'm the most excited. I still felt like I was being performed for mm-hmm. by the world's most charming performer, which is pretty great. Yes, and not a bad day's work. <laughs> but like, I got to, when I interviewed Ish Butler from Diggable Planets and Shabazz Palaces, at the end of it, this is not what I normally do, ever. I told him, I was like, I just want you to know that Blowout Comb, the second Diggable Planets album, like, that's the record that I got when I was 12, listened to twice a day, every day, and still listened to all the time. Like that was on the very short list of things that reflected me trying to figure out who I was in the world, you know? Yeah. And I got to tell him. Yeah. Right? Isn't it amazing that art can make our lives something? And that art can give meaning to our lives. And hey, get a load of this, dude. Your art did that for me. So I'm really tempted to ask you, hearing you say that, because we talked earlier in the conversation about not believing in God. Is, Is art what you believe in? Is art the thing that fills that space for you? Because there is such a reverence, if I may, when you do your interviews. And I'm hearing where that comes from, that you only interview people that you genuinely admire and want to speak to. But there is a, and not a, you know, sycophantic reverence or anything like that, but a genuine, an admiration of what seems to be some kind of transcendence or escape It is hard for me to believe that I am worthy of making art. It's hard for me to believe that I am good enough at anything or that my life is worth doing. Not because I'm suicidal, don't get me wrong, but just... Yeah, yeah. I know that when I die, I will disappear. And then what? Right? All these things are the case for me. And so, to me, the act of creating art is, it is like an extraordinary refutation of those facts. It's like in defiance of those facts. It is an act of faith that it is worth doing even though it has no concrete purpose Mm -hmm. that to create something is worth doing and to me those works stella or a rap song or whatever 
brings so much to my life. I'm, it is the reason to me that it's worth being around. Mm. And so in a way, when I do bullseye, I get to commune with that a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm. I got somebody sitting right there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who actually made shit that touched me in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even if it's stupid. Yeah. I mean, I felt that with nothing stupider than Mel Brooks. Right. And I felt that way when I sat there with Mel Brooks, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought, this is the guy that thought of, oh, I am your servant. You are my master. What bait must I use to entrap you? <laughs> ah, but the servant waits while the master baits. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. This, like too, the act of, is the defiance of irrelevance. <laughs> right. I mean, like, only a real dick would say, art is my religion. Yeah. And I also like baseball. Right. But I do really believe that it is of consequence. It is worth recognizing and celebrating in the world. It is worth recognizing in many, many forms. And that it is an impulse that is fundamental to being human and one that is worth being celebrated for everyone, including those of us who are not as gifted at it and or find it really hard to do. Well, may you uh, may you keep shooting the shit for a good long time. <clears throat> yeah, well, I just did. I just used up half your life. <laughs> thank you, Jesse uh, Thorne. It is, thank you, Sam. It's a real honor to talk to you. Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Jesse Thorne, the co-owner of Maximum Fun. If you're not already a fan of Jesse's shows, Bullseye, Jordan Jesse Go, Judge John Hodgman, I could not recommend his work more highly. I humbly submit that you will find them to be a reliable source of delight. The beautiful Midnight Disease show art is by M.K. Cummins. Find more of M.K.'s work at the links in the show notes. Thank you so much to all of you who have left us such lovely reviews in Apple Podcasts. As you know, those things make a really big difference when it comes to new people finding the show. If you have 30 seconds to spare and you like what you are hearing on the Midnight Disease, please say so in a review. I would also welcome your feedback and comments on anything that you have heard on the show so far. You can email me at midnight at walt.fm. Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. And until then, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. Midnight Cruisers.